What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beck. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we can continue to gather, that we can continue to sing songs of how great and glorious you are, of how wondrous your salvation is. Father, we pray that as we come to your word now, as we explore this passage in James, God, may our hearts and our ears, our minds be open to hearing what you have to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Kadava faith. If you're unfamiliar with the term kadava, it's basically the medical term for a corpse. It's confirming uh, the medical people in the room. That's correct, right? Yeah, good. Is is the term for a dead body. I have a friend who is currently in med school, and he was recently telling me what an average week of his studies actually looks like. As he was telling me, he has, you know, got to do so many hours, an insane amount of hours of study, and then has to do tests almost every day, and then has a bunch of other extracurricular activities. During, in the midst of all of this, he also talked to me about his cadaver. He's, you know, he'd say, oh, yeah, I have to go to the, uh, it wouldn't be a morgue, but whatever it is, the fridge, and, uh, and I go and spend some time with my cadaver, and then I, cadaver, and then I go home. And he talked about him as though he was a friend that he caught up with every week. Uh, med, students, apparently, uh, med students, apparently, if you didn't know this, have a cadaver that is assigned to them during their degree, uh, which they use to study the human body. 
Makes a lot of sense. They have to do, their whole life is going to be all about the human body. Now, of course, my friend, uh, you know, he didn't begin to, uh, you know, when I say he talked about him like he was a friend, it's not like he did actually start to believe that he really was his friend. He didn't begin to establish a kind of bond with his cadaver that led him to believe that, you know, maybe, maybe he's not actually dead. Can you imagine if he did? Can you imagine if he actually started to believe that he was alive and decided to, you know, dress him up and bring him to parties and introduce him as his mate? I'm pretty sure you'd be thinking the same thing as me. Time for my uh, medical friend to go and see another medical professional in the field of psychiatry. You know, that, this scenario is ridiculous because a, a dead person is dead. There is no life in that body. There is no breath in the cadaver. And James wants you to know that a faith which does not produce works is a cadaver faith. Faith without works is dead. Most of the time, it's easy for us in real life to tell the difference between a living person and a dead one. Generally, it's pretty clear. But how can you tell if your faith is living or dead? Is it, is, is it as, as simple as saying, yep, I believe in Jesus, and then just going and doing good things? Is that enough? Do I know that now that my, my faith is alive? What if I don't do half the things that I know that I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian? Some of the very things that James talks about in this passage. What if I'm not doing that? Does that mean I have cadaver faith? You see, it's easier to take the pulse on a body than it is on our faith. How do we, how can we take the pulse on our faith to make sure that it is alive? I pray that as we work through this passage this morning, we'll be able to do just that and seek God for living faith. So let's have our Bibles open to James chapter 2 in search of answers to these questions and have our hearts and minds open and our notebooks open if you have them as we work our way through what the Lord is saying to us this morning. This morning we're going to explore this passage with three points. Point number one, lonely faith is dead faith. Point number two, living faith is deed faith. And point number three, gospel faith is fruitful faith. Let's begin at point number one. Lonely faith is dead faith. One of the products of the Reformation was what has come to be known as the five solas. I mentioned it earlier, sola is the Latin word for only or alone, And fide is the word for faith, as I mentioned before. There are five of them together, or have come to be known, and these are five solas, beliefs that are distinctive to and summarize the Christian faith. I'm not going to go through all of them right now, but as I just mentioned, I'm going to uh, highlight one, sola fide, faith alone. See, the point of this statement is to say that salvation comes through faith alone. There are other parts of salvation, which is why there are other solas, but the point 
being made with this is that we access and we receive that salvation through faith and through faith alone. You cannot get it any other way. You cannot earn your salvation through good works. You can't buy it and you can't get it through a combination of all of these things, a mixture of faith and good works or anything like that. Now, this was a controversial opinion at the time. It's not, con- not controversial because the Bible doesn't teach it, but it's controversial because the Roman Catholic Church was teaching something completely different. They taught and still teach today that you gain salvation through faith and that to, uh, to keep that faith, your good works are added. That's why it's so important for a Roman Catholic to attend Mass to do confessions, to pay indulgences, to do time in purgatory, all of those kinds of things. These things add to and keep you in a state of salvation. And so one of Martin Luther's key objections to the church at the time, which was at the heart of what became the Protestant Reformation, was that justification by grace came through faith alone. Now, that's, that's all well and good. But what do you do when James actually says in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Why, why would we have sola fide as a crucial Christian confession when Scripture itself seems to say the exact opposite? That is an excellent question. Let's dive into the text to get the answer, beginning from verse 14. Read along with me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In verse 14, we have James's introductory statement, which is what he is going to be talking about throughout this entire passage. If a person says they have faith, notice that emphasis. He doesn't just say, if a person has faith. He says, notice if a person says they have faith, right from the outset, he's telling you here what he thinks. A claim to faith that does not have works is not living faith. His rhetorical question here in verse 16 of what good is it is matched by the one in verse 16. And they give us two bookends that really make the point. What good is it? And those questions, being rhetorical, very clearly, they are meant to be answered with, well, they are no good. That faith is no good. A faith without works cannot save. A faith without works is good for nothing. And here he's talking about salvation from our sin and God's righteous punishment for it. That's what he means by salvation. Remember a couple of weeks ago in James 1.21, he uses the term to refer to that salvation from our sin and from God's righteous punishment. James makes his point quite strongly here right at the outset and he follows up with a very clear and obvious example. I've mentioned before how uh, when James uses the term brothers, as we see in verse 14, 
he's mostly used it to refer not just to men, but to everybody. So it is there in verse 14. But in verse 15, did you notice that James intentionally includes sisters there as well? He actually didn't have to do that. He could quite have sufficiently, and everybody would have understood him if he just said brothers to refer to everybody. But he actually intentionally includes sisters. And I think James is doing that to highlight what he did in verse 27 of chapter 1. Because there he emphasizes the importance of looking after the orphans and widows. See, James here is, is highlighting those in the church and in our society who are of greatest need. In the Bible, you often see widows and orphans mentioned because in the ancient world and in the New Testament world, there were two classes of people that were often found at the bottom of the social ladder. And this is yet another reminder for us as followers of Christ of how our love for others and for our brothers and sisters must be more than just words. James He slaps you in the face in his response to this with the well wishes of this heartless, hypothetical person who has recognized this. And this is what they have said. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Can you imagine if one of your brothers or sisters in Christ had lost their job? They got kicked out of their home. They were living on the street. All that they had left uh, was $20 in their back pocket and nothing else. And you had the means to help them. And your response to them was, God bless you. He's going to feed you and he's going to clothe you. Talk about a callous response. Talk about rubbing salt into the wound rather than bandaging it up. And in particular, that phrase, go in peace, for a Jew would have had a sharper edge to it. As we saw in our series in Kings, the concept of shalom, the Hebrew word which is usually translated as peace, refers to a concept that is far more than just an absence of conflict. God's shalom in the Old Testament carried with it a sense of things being as they should be complete and whole, no one lacking anything. And so James's hypothetical statement here by an uncaring, faithless person is even sharper. It would be extremely cold for a person to wish for God's peace on them and then to do absolutely nothing to bring about that more holistic peace in their lives by providing them with food and clothing. Brothers and sisters, as we were reminded last week, does your claim to faith extend to care for the poor? Now, understand that this is not something that we, we, we can eradicate. Jesus, Jesus himself says, you always have the poor with you. How do we figure out what it is that we are meant to do? Well, firstly, as James emphasizes in this passage, we look after, firstly, our brothers and sisters in our church. That is our, our first line of responsibility. But then beyond that, as we talked about last week in question time, it is to continue to pray, to seek God, to to look at the opportunities that He's placed in front of you in those that we may care for who are poor and needy. We've included this commitment in our church 
membership covenant. Brothers and sisters, are we acting on it? Or are we just saying it? How can we spur one another on and encourage one another on in doing this? Well, James concludes this hypothetical scenario with this summarizing statement in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Lonely faith is dead faith. James makes uh, almost exactly the same point at the end of our chapter in verse 26, which we'll get to later. Once again, giving us a couple of markers that make the point of this section clear. And here's the thing. Both Catholics and Protestants agree with verse 17. But Catholics will say that it is not faith alone that can save Faith must be accompanied by or joined to works in order for a person to be saved. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they will take works and put them at the root of salvation. You must do works and keep doing them throughout your life in order to remain saved. For us as Christians, we say that the Bible teaches that it is faith alone that saves And we say this because there is nothing that we can add to our salvation. I don't need to pedal hard to get to heaven. I just need to get on the motorbike. And the reason we say this is because Scripture makes it clear that God is the one who saves, not us. Not not Him and us. It is Him alone who saves. And there are many texts in Scripture that make this clear, like Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5. You notice the language there. He chose us in Him. He predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of His will. But even though it is faith alone that saves, that faith is never lonely. It is never alone. John Calvin helpfully said, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. It is absolutely only faith which can make us right with God. But for us in this life, one of the clear, observable evidences of that of the true and the living faith that God has worked in our own hearts and lives, which He sees. What we observe is the fruit of good works. This is at the heart of the schism between Catholics and Protestants. Is salvation a work of God alone that we then put our faith in and then produces works Or is it a cooperative work of both God and us? Let's look at how James unpacks this and go to point two. Living faith is deed faith. By far the longest point, just in case you're wondering when it's going to end. Living faith is deed faith. When I say deed faith, I mean faith that produces works, as James does. We have... Uh, Currently in our house, courtesy of the Rollins, two banana trees in our backyard. 
Uh, I think I've mentioned before that I am a horrible gardener, but I have done nothing with it. The Robin and the girls are looking after it. One of these trees, despite, uh, I say our, but it's really their best efforts, daily watering and whatnot, even putting some, some fertilizer food around, has withered and died, and pretty much died, I think. The other, though, seems to be growing and healthy. From the first tree, I'm not going to expect any bananas. But the second one, uh, unless Robin asks me to start looking after it, we can expect some bananas to come from that tree in due time, right? And that's because it is alive. It is living. And so the most natural thing that it is going to do is produce fruit. In this section, James expands on how living faith is deed faith. And he does so by using a common rhetorical technique at the time. He introduces a fictional friend that he is having a discussion with. Let's read from verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even though it might seem like James's fictional friend is saying something confusing, so for example, you might expect him to say, you have faith, works and I have faith. I think the point that James is simply making is that he is highlighting what he has already said. You see, his fictional friend here is separating faith and works, whereas James wants to make it clear that you cannot separate them. The two go together like a motorbike and a sidecar. They belong together. Moreover, James wants to show that faith is proven by works. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. And I think here is another indicator that James doesn't count faith and works as one and the same thing. Faith is made evident and its existence is shown when good works are produced. Faith is shown to be real and living by the fruit of good works that it produces in someone's life. It's worth pausing here for a moment. Because even though the person James is targeting in this passage is the one with dead faith, there is another person who might hear what he is saying here who does not have that problem, but has the opposite problem. That is the person who finds the, the underlying structure of Catholicism that of being able to earn my salvation appealing. The kind of person who is drawn towards wanting to be able to contribute, to be able to cooperate somehow with God on their salvation. Brother or sister, if that is you, that is putting the cart before the horse. That is trying to hop into the sidecar and thinking that it's got an engine of its own that's going to be able to take you somewhere. James's point is not that works in your life help you into heaven. 
It's that works are signs of your salvation. Now, if that, if that stresses you out, ask yourself this question. What are you looking for when you count up the good works in your life? There's nothing wrong with looking for the evidence of God's work, of good fruit, of good works in your life. But when you look for that, what are you looking for? What are you hoping to find? Are you hoping for enough good works in your life that is going to tip the scales and convince you that you are a good person, that you are saved because you, you, you do good things? Or are you looking for evidence that you are trusting in Christ and in Him alone and seeking to see the fruit of His Spirit growing in you? It is when we put our trust in Jesus and continue to look to Him that works flow out of us and do so with freedom. But perhaps for you, that, that, that still just feels like another work. <laughs> how, how do I do that? How do I, how do I properly put my faith in Jesus? Well, that's where verse 19 comes in. In this verse, James is pointing out that faith that is mere belief, faith that is uh, simply just acknowledging a truth, is not saving or living faith. Philip Melanchthon, who was one of Martin Luther's fellow reformers, he articulated this distinction. He, arti he, he helped to define what we mean as Christians when we say the word faith by using three Latin terms, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Mouthfuls, I know. But briefly, what he means by that can be explained using English words that have formed from them. Let me quickly go through that for you. Notitia means to notice something that is true. So you can look at a plane and say, I see a plane. And you'll be noticing something that is true. A census refers to assenting to that truth. That is agreeing that it is true. Not only do you see the plane, you can also say, uh, I see the plane, and I know I'm not making this up. I know it's not an, an illusion or a mirage that I have invented in my own mind. That really is a Jetstar plane that is going to take me to Sydney in the middle of the night. I don't doubt that that is what it is. In verse 19 of, of, of James 2, the demons that he refers to have these two senses of faith. James points to the belief that God is one, that He is a trinity, which is something that even demons believe. You remember a couple of weeks ago, James, when he says here, you do well, there's perhaps a bit of sarcasm there, a little bit of irony in what James is saying, because he's pointing to the fact that, well, here is a belief, good on you, great, you might believe that, so do the demons. The demons know this thing to be true as evidenced by their response, by the fact that they shudder at the truth of God being one. They have notitia and a census of that truth. 
But that is not something that saves them. So fiducia is the third and the final necessary step in living faith that goes past noticing a truth and then agreeing with the truth. It is finally entrusting your whole self to that truth. You live by that truth. You, uh, you don't live denying it. You don't live by something else. And fiducia is what gets you on the plane. Fiducia is what enables you to take your feet and to walk down the boarding ramp at one o'clock in the morning, get in the plane and fly to Sydney. Now, believe me when I say that I understand that it's easier to grasp getting onto a plane than it is putting your trust in Jesus. For me, what that looks like, what this... uh, you know, what, what notitia ascensus and fiducia look like in my own life is to recognize that I am spiritually dead and lost in my sin without Jesus and that my salvation can only come through what He has done for me. And that means at the very least that my only hope is turning away from my sin and trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross to cleanse me of it and to save me from it. That is the gospel. And trusting means not seeking to buy or to earn my way into heaven through my good works or whatever else I might think that God might find attractive. It means knowing that even my best works are filthy rags, unfit for the holy God in His presence. It means noticing and agreeing with the truth of God's salvation in Jesus and then entrusting my whole life to it. And so what living faith looks like is the fruit of repentance and always turning back to Christ to remind me of this whenever I start to think that I need to do more in order for God to be pleased with me. Trusting in Christ means all my confidence is in Him and not in me. This is the living faith that each of us is called to have. Living faith notices the truth, it agrees with the truth, and then trusts in the truth. And when you have living faith, the natural fruit of our lives is works that please God. James goes on to give us a couple of biblical examples to make the point. Let's read from verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. James continues his dialogue with his fictional friend. And this time he pulls no punches in telling him what he thinks about him. The word translated foolish here is literally empty. And I think James is using a play on words to communicate that this empty-headed person is empty of good works. Let me give you proof that, proof that deedless faith is useless, James says. 
And then he proceeds to say that Abraham was justified by his work of offering Isaac on the altar. Here is yet another key Protestant phrase which makes many, sorry, another key verse which makes many Protestants nervous. You see, Catholics and others like to take verse 21 and the phrase justified by works to say that justification is an ongoing process in our lives that begins with God's gracious work and then continues with our cooperative work. This is why, as a Catholic, one must continue to receive grace from God through the church. By receiving it in the Lord's Supper, in the sacraments, by receiving it and going to Mass, and by doing various acts of what they would call works of love in order to be saved. You can certainly understand the dilemma here. On face value, it may seem like this is exactly what James is saying, right? Martin Luther had his own struggles with the book of James for this reason. But but do we need to read these verses in an unintuitive way in order to make it fit into our understanding of justification by faith alone? Well, the first thing to note is that obviously our church fathers who put the canon together recognized that James and all of Paul's writings were not incompatible. So we should also approach James with the same attitude. When Paul says in Romans 3.28 that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, our first instinct shouldn't be, well, obviously these guys said completely different things and the original people who put the Bible together, they just missed that and got it wrong. No, they certainly had plenty of opportunity to leave books out that weren't genuine or did not contain God's truth. What we ought to do when we come to these verses and these books considering what God is saying to us through them. The key to understanding what James is saying here is understanding what he means when he uses the term justification. Unlike what some people might suggest, they don't need to have the exact same meaning in every situation that it is used. The word for justification in the Bible is actually used with a few different senses. And to give you an example, Paul himself uses the term justification in different verses in the book of Romans itself. And not only that, within a few paragraphs of each other, he uses the term in different ways. The meaning of the verse I've just quoted there in 328 is the one that Protestants like us have become known for. That is that we are declared to be righteous. The sense of justification in this sentence is that uh, it's, it's like we're in a courtroom and God declares that we are righteous. That's his meaning of justification in 3.28. But if you go back 24 verses to verse 4 of Romans 3, Paul quotes Psalm 51 to make a point. And in this sense, what Psalm 51 and what Paul mean is that God is proven or shown to be righteous in the eyes of the people. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so given the emphasis of uh, our passage in James 2 this morning, it seems pretty clear to me that this is the sense that James is using. 
But this is what he means. Abraham, when he was faced with the greatest test of his life and past, was shown to have living and active and true faith. That's why James says in verse 22 that faith was active along with his works and completed by his works. Lonely faith is dead faith. Deedless faith is dead faith. Interestingly, in verse 23, James quotes the same verse that Paul uses in both Romans 4 and Galatians 3. That is Genesis 15, 6. And once again, if these guys were trying to say completely different things, surely our church fathers would have noticed that They quoted the same verse and applied them in completely different ways. But no. The way Paul uses Genesis 15.6 in Romans 4.22 and Galatians 3.6 does not undermine what James is saying. You see, Paul in both Romans and Galatians is tackling a different problem. In Galatians, he is launching an offensive attack against those who are trying to teach in the Galatian church that you need, to be, uh, you need to observe Jewish law and be circumcised in order to be saved. And in Romans, Paul was, is laying the theological foundation for how a person is justified. That is how, is, how they are declared righteous by God because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And interestingly, if you flip over to Romans 6... Paul addresses the same issue that James is addressing. He begins talking to the person who would object that this understanding of justification by faith alone is going to lead to free-willing sin. Go and check it out. I encourage you. Romans 6. It's almost like Paul and James both understand the danger of seeing justification by faith alone as an excuse For some people to think that it gives them a free pass to live however they want. James's point is that the Bible's statement that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness reached its fulfillment, reached its completion in his act of offering up Isaac as a sacrifice. His faith was proven in that act. Abraham's living faith was a deed faith. So when James says, as a conclusion to all of this in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. You don't need to panic. When we use words like sola fide to summarize teaching... It's important that we understand what we mean when we say it and what the Bible means. So the the theological summary statement of being saved by faith alone doesn't suddenly fall apart because in verse 24, James says that we are justified not by faith alone. In context, James is referring to a faith that is proven or shown to be a living faith by the works you can do that flow out of that faith. This is why he can say that this is the type of faith that saves. Because he understands that living faith shows itself in the fruit of good works. 
James continues with another example from the opposite end of the spectrum in Rahab. You see, Abraham was the ultimate role model of Jewish faith. That's why he was commonly called a a friend of God. And the example of him sacrificing Isaac was often held up as a great act of faith, even in literature outside of the Bible. And this time, we have a non-Israelite in Rahab who was also a prostitute, which James intentionally points out to show that she is a different kind of example. Just in case you thought it was only the great heroes of the faith who could produce noteworthy works of obedience to the Lord, think again. Not only is Rahab mentioned here, but she is also mentioned in the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Even if other people might look down on you for your lack of status, God delights in shaming the wisdom of the world by choosing the weak things to shame the strong. And in doing so, He reminds all of us, every single one of us, regardless of whether we might be considered a great hero of the faith or somebody who is just barely holding on to the grace of God, He reminds every single one of us that not a single one of us has earned our faith. It has been given as a gift of His sovereign mercy. So brother, sister, live it out regardless of what others might think of you, regardless of whether you feel like you're an Abraham or a Rahab, live it out. Rejoice in the grace of God. Do you want a faith that is living? It's a bit of a silly question, isn't it? I mean, who wants to bring a cadaver to the party, right? Or worse, who wants to be a cadaver at the party? Of course, of course we want living faith. Don't let your correct knowledge of God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, be a reason to think that striving for good works in obedience to God is an optional extra. Because this is how real faith works. This is the point of James. It's interesting, isn't it? We all know that we don't want dead faith. And yet it's easier to imagine what that looks like in the abstract than it is to think about concrete examples. Well, let's think about it. What parts of the Christian faith of your faith, are you most likely to leave at the level of a census? What are things that you are likely to agree with, yet are far more unlikely to do anything about? To use James' example, how does believing that God is one shape your life? If the demons shudder, what does that belief do for you? Do you recognize the the 
omnipotence, the greatness, the wonder, the magnificence of our God. Do you actively forsake other gods? Do you see them for what they really are? Cheap idols, cheap counterfeits of the real thing. Are you willing to offer up even the things that are the closest and most precious to you to Him? Will you surrender those to the true God? Do you rejoice in and delight in the fact that God has swept you up into the perfect relationship that He shares within Himself between the three persons of the Trinity? The example of Abraham is actually a good one for parents to think about. Have you surrendered your desires for your children to the will of God? If your kids were to answer a question about what you think is most important for them, how would they answer based on what you do and not just what you say? Brothers and sisters, where is there a mismatch between what you believe and what you do? Where is there something in your life that you have recognized, that you agree with, but you have not trusted your life in it? Dead faith can take different forms. You can smell the decay of it when someone confidently tells you that they're a Christian because they prayed a prayer or they walked forward with great emotion at a Christian event, but never really entrusted their lives to Christ. You can hear the stillness of breathless lungs when someone is able to recognize truth in what Jesus says. Perhaps they even take the good bits on board and live by the things that Jesus says. But then they refuse to fully place their lives and their eternal destiny in His hands. You can feel the lack of a pulse when a person begins to trust in their good works and in their forms of religion, their regular attendance at church, their caring for the poor, but they still have a heart that seeks no repentance and does not seek living faith. Where is your faith starting to show signs of decay. Lonely faith is dead faith. Living faith is deed faith. And if we don't define faith, we might as well be Roman Catholics. That brings us to our final point. Gospel faith is fruitful faith. Let's read the final verse of our passage, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As I mentioned before, James here is stating pretty much the same thing that he says in verse 17. But there's an expansion in this verse. James not only says that faith apart from works is dead, 
He uses an analogy of the body apart from the spirit. Without a person's spirit, you have no life. That's why my friend can talk to his cadaver, but his cadaver won't talk back. But on a deeper level, and particularly in the context of everything that James is saying in this passage, for the Christian, we recognize that true faith only comes through the breath of the Holy Spirit breathing life into you. And good works are made possible in our lives by the Holy Spirit working in us as we seek to live obediently to Him. James makes it clear in this passage that a faith that is not accompanied by works, a faith that does not produce works, is dead. And James is not talking about a general faith. Not talking about a general belief in Jesus and God and all good things. Nor is he talking about a faith where your works peddling help you reach the finish line. Your cooperation is not required. But he is talking about a living faith that produces the fruit of good works in every believer's life. He's talking about the faith that Abraham and Rahab were the forerunners for. He's talking about the kind of faith that saves He's talking about the faith that brings new life to dead, stony hearts. He's talking about the law of liberty, the word of truth, the good news of the gospel of grace found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are here this morning and you do not have saving faith, let me encourage you to consider this message and to respond to God by turning away from your sin and putting your faith in Jesus. In other words, let me urge you to get on the plane. You see, the message of the gospel is that each and every single one of us is born spiritually dead. We are born without God's spirit in our lives. And while that sounds bleak, the good news is that Jesus has made it possible for us to be spiritually reborn. He lived a life of perfect faith. And he lived a life of perfect works and then went on to the cross to be a perfect sacrifice for our trespasses. And scripture tells us that it is through faith in him and through faith in him alone that we can be brought to life, to have our sins forgiven and to be justified in God's sight. Look at what Paul has to say in Romans 4 after quoting the same verse that James does. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Friends, this is what it is all about. As an act of God's grace, we receive forgiveness of sin, justification in God's sight, 
New life in Christ with God's Spirit breathed into us, now producing the fruit of good works as we follow Him. That is living faith. Brothers and sisters, hanging out at parties with a cadaver is not very enjoyable. But being a cadaver is even less enjoyable. Living faith is not just about noticing and agreeing with truth. It's also about entrusting your life to it and living according to it. Check your pulse. Trust in Jesus and live for Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive us. For when we think that faith without works is something that we can hold up and prop up as though it were alive. Father, forgive us for the times when we fail to produce the fruit of good works. And Father, forgive us for when we seek to trust in those good works as though we could somehow have a hand in our own salvation. Lord, please, please, we pray, turn our hearts towards you that we may trust and rest in Christ and his finished work. And out of that, know the freedom, the liberty, the joy that comes from living a life straining by the power of your spirit to please you in all that we do. Father, may your grace be at work in each of us to remind us of these things and to produce your fruit in Jesus' name. Amen.